Philippians 2, uh, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active, uh, that it's not just this dead book from 2,000 years ago, but your spirit is present in it whenever it is read uh, and whenever it is preached, helping us know you. Uh, and know you especially through Jesus. And so we pray that that might happen afresh tonight as we consider this passage, that there might be an overflowing of your spirit to help us see the beauty and grace of Jesus and the beauty of following him. And just to consider all the things that Paul is, is saying here and how you're speaking through him. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Well, back uh, in our... Uh, home in Pennsylvania. Uh, we had this beautiful rose bush in our front yard. And one spring, it had like just bloomed. It was at like peak bloom. And, I, and I'm going out there both to like kind of look at it and just enjoy, enjoy being outside, but also to check on my daughter, my oldest, Amelia, who's just out there playing. And I look over at this rose bush, and it, Amelia is standing, standing there, and there's just a pile of rose petals all around her. She has literally plucked off every single petal from every single flower that was bloomed. Like I didn't even get to enjoy it. And, and me and Kim were like really frustrated. We're like, Amelia, that's not good. Like mommy and daddy want to enjoy the flowers. Like if you do that again, you're going to be in really big trouble. And so I go back inside five minutes later I go to check on her, and this time she's in the backyard. And in the backyard, we had just planted, well, not just, two years ago, we had planted some peonies. And if you know anything about those plants, like, they take a while. They have to be planted there before they'll actually bloom. And this was, like, finally the first year that they were going to bloom, and, and they had. And what happens? You can guess. I go out there, and she has done the exact same thing. She has pulled off every petal to every peony. She's just ripped them into shreds. And so we have like no flowers at all to enjoy now. And you can, I guess, what happened to Amelia after that. Human beings do not like to obey. Uh, there, there's no quicker way to learn that than to be around kids or to have kids. I, I mean, I could, I could just go up, I could stay up here for hours and just list off all the examples. Like even, I'm going to give you one more. This weekend, um, the girls are, are playing quietly in their room. They sound like they're having fun. And, and I go in and, and check. 
And we have these like big, long curtains, white, beautiful curtains in their bedroom. And they just drew with dry erase marker over all of them. <laughs> and they had already done this once. Like, it was Julia. I, will, I shouldn't throw Amelia under the bus. It was my youngest, two-year-old Julia. She doesn't really know much better. But um, when you think about it being it, so maybe you think about your parents and, and their you know, calls for you to obey when you're growing up. I think there's two ways that most of us respond to that. One is sort of what I've been detailing, that you, know, you hear this command, don't do that, and you want to do it all the more. But others of you, maybe you, your parents, you know, said, hey, you need to do this, you need to obey. And that was like this opportunity for like, man, I can, I can win them over with my good behavior. Like maybe I'll get that Christmas gift that I wanted. Maybe I'll get this thing. I think when we hear the, con- the same language of obedience in the context of Christianity, many of us have the same two responses. We, we hear this language of obedience, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, don't do all things without grumbling. And we just think, okay, is this what Christianity is about? Is it, is it just a bunch of ethics and rules and I just got to follow those and that's, that's Christianity? And we're like, I'm not really interested in that. I don't really want to limit my freedom in that way. But I think others of us, we see those things. We jump in. We see it as an opportunity. If I can kill it at this Christian thing, I can somehow put God in my debt. Uh, if, if I obey, you know, he's, he's going to have to give me a really hot spouse and a great sex life. When I'm married, he's going to have to give me a successful career. He's going to have to basically just you know, keep most major suffering and difficulty away from my life. And then when we do that, when we obey, when we think we're doing what he says and we don't get that, we go back to the first response. Well, God's not really worth obeying. But are those the only two options to think about obedience? I think to answer that, we need to think, like, what, what is the goal of obedience? Like, what, why does it even matter? Why, why do I try, me and Kim, try to get Amelia and Julia to listen to us? Well, I think if parents are truly parenting well, if you were parented well, the, the goal of that, that call to obedience that you were given was to shape you into the kind of human being who could really flourish in life. Like all those rules and guidelines were given to us and enforced so that you might eventually become a person who can go out into the world with increasing joy and freedom. Obedience is really about growth and maturity. It's about change. I mean, in some ways, you guys being in college, leaving sort of the confines of being in your parents' house and all, all the rules and things that went along with that, that really should be the culmination of all that obedience and, and training that you received as a child. Now you have the time to exercise that joy and freedom and be on your own. The more obedient Amelia is, the more freedom I give her. The, the more she listens, the more I am just ready for her to go out and have fun and do you know, what she wants. When God calls us to obedience, he's really trying to accomplish that same thing in our life. The, the new obedience 
that flows from the gospel, that flows from being connected to Christ, is meant to give us a life of joy and freedom. Because Jesus knows how life works and what will really bring us joy. And so that's what we're going to think about tonight in this passage, uh, that connection to Jesus works joyful obedience uh, into our life. And we see that in three ways, uh, the power of gospel obedience, like the context of gospel obedience, and then lastly, the, the result of gospel obedience. So first, let's think of, uh, about the power for gospel obedience and how we see that in this passage. So that, that call to obey, verse 12, I mean, it is heavy. I hope it sounded heavy when you heard it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, I, I think that's the kind of language that someone might hear that is just sort of considering Christianity and is like, this is exactly why I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Like, I'm not interested in more guilt and condemnation. If, that, if that's what Christianity is about, like, I'm out. I don't want to do that. And, and I think there's also a problem in this phrase that some of you who grew up in the church and maybe know the Bible really well are wondering, you're hearing Paul say this, and you're like, wait, didn't Paul say in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith? And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so what, what is going on? Doesn't work out your salvation contradict that? Well, Paul's already been using language, if you've been following along with Philippians this semester, back in chapter 1. Uh, he uses this language. He says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But what we see not only in Philippians, but over the whole Bible is that salvation is not just this one time event. Salvation is, is not just you having said a prayer at a camp or you getting baptized like those things. Those, those were profound, pivotal moments in your life where you really came to know God and experienced his grace in your life for the first time. Um, they're really, uh, the, what's going on there, I think, for a lot of us is this theological reality that uh, theologians will call justification by faith, that you experience that God comes into your life. He, he does this act of free grace where he, he pardons your sin. He declares you righteous through the righteousness of Christ that he imputes to you, that he counts to you just by faith alone. But God doesn't stop there. That, that's not the full picture of salvation. God's not content only just to, to declare us righteous, to forgive us of our sins. He wants to actually make us righteous. Salvation is something that God actually is intended to be worked out, fleshed out in our lives. And theologians have called this process sanctification. Maybe you've heard that word. And I'll, I'll confess, I kind of set up a little bit of a straw man when I referenced Ephesians 2. Because if you keep reading, I read from Ephesians 2, 8, verses 8 and 9, you'll hear something that sounds very similar to what Paul is saying here in verse 12 of Philippians. In Ephesians 2, 10, we read, For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So often I, th I think we, we spend so much time on that first part of salvation, and that is crucial, that, that you do not get anywhere if you do not understand 
that you're saved by grace through faith, if you don't understand justification by faith. But as we can see in Ephesians 2.10, God has so much more planned. We are his workmanship. He is shaping us into something beautiful. He is creating something for us to walk in. And one of the best metaphors to think about this whole justification, sanctification distinction uh, that I've heard is, is just marriage. I mean, think about it. So when Kim and I got married, it was like this one-time act. Like we went up there, we were standing there with my RUF campus minister, and like at one point in time, we were not married. And at another point of time, we were married. But something would be deeply wrong if after that we were like, cool, we're married now. And then we just went on with our lives. Like we just went and just lived as if like we lived before. We lived by ourselves. We didn't really pay a lot of attention to each other. Or we just kind of stagnated in that relationship. Like you guys know intuitively that something like that, a relationship like that is something that, yes, it starts at a certain point, but it's meant to be fleshed out, that, that marriage may begin with this one-time declaration that is binding. I mean, it, life, like, till death do us part. But it means entering into this lifetime of working out the implications and the depth of that relationship that has been permanently established. So this working that Paul is calling us to Uh, it's not only flowing from an established relationship, but the second thing we see in verse 13 is that God himself is actually the power behind the working. After after giving this crazy command, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul immediately follows up in verse 13 with, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His work, our working stands upon his working. You know, really what it's saying there with both to will and to work for his good pleasure, it's saying he gives us both the desire and the ability to obey. He, he doesn't just forgive our sin and then say, okay, yeah, you've got to follow me and live a good life now, but it's kind of up to you. No, he is just as present, just as gracious in that as he was in that initial moment of forgiving our sins and making us righteous. One of the things, uh, you know, going back to Pennsylvania, I guess that's the theme uh, for this sermon. One of the things I don't miss about living in Pennsylvania is shoveling snow all the time. Uh, Whenever it happened, like I would usually procrastinate like as long as I could. And I would just do like the bare minimum. Like I would like carve out a track just for my tires to get through. Because it, it just, it was such a hassle. And first thing in the morning, it's cloudy, it's cold. You do not want to go out there. Uh, it was just this overwhelming task for me a lot of the times. But one thing I would hear every morning after a huge snow is my neighbor who had a snowblower. And if you've like never seen snow in your entire life and don't know what that is, it's like this giant, it's like a lawnmower for snow. Like, it even, like, there's, like, the hardcore ones have, like, these blades. Like, it's, like, really kind of scary. Um, but, you know, you just, like, plow through, and it's just blowing the snow right out of the way. It just clears it out. It looks so clean and crisp. It's awesome. But, like, every morning, every time we had a big snow, 
he would be out there just plowing away. And not only would he do his own driveway, but he would like do the, the whole sidewalks for like our whole street. What was the difference? Like, why, why is this guy so faithful in, in doing this task that needs to get done, that, that is going to bless other people? Why was I so lazy? I mean, is he just, was he just really more hardworking guy than me? That's probably possible. <laughs> but I think the greater factor was that he had a power that I didn't have. And that's what Paul is trying to remind us here in this passage. That God, God's not handing us a shovel and saying, like, get to work, start shoveling snow. <coughs> Like, for those of us who are connected to Christ by faith, like, he is giving us this brand new, powerful snow blower. Yes, we have to make an effort. Like, we have to push it. We have to walk. But God is the one doing the work. He is giving us the ability to change and to obey. Like, all we have to do is put our, our hands on that snow blower and just walk push it forward, and just watch it do its magic. And I, I think it's interesting as well, you know, you wonder about what's this language of fear and trembling, and that made me think of the snowblower too, because again, it's this kind of loud, irritating, uh, intimidating machine that you're like, if you weren't careful, you could, you could really hurt yourself with it. But that danger is exactly why uh, it's powerful, and I think it's the same thing with having God in our life. Like, if you let God into your life, like he is really going to mess with it. He's probably going to do things that you really don't want him to do. But you're going to see real change happen. Um, so in, in verses in the next uh, section, um, uh, well, so in this section we see Paul describing the power uh, to obey and where that comes from. But and we could, honestly, I could just stop there. This, there's so much, I could spend so much more time on this. But if we did that, we'd be missing something that is really crucial, that is embedded in everything that Paul is saying here. You know, all the verbs, sometimes this doesn't come across in the English translation, all the verbs here are plural. Paul is not just calling each of us individually to work out our own salvation. He's calling the people of God at Philippi together, he's calling us to work out our salvation. Like the context of gospel obedience is the people of God. Like we learn to obey, we become more like Jesus together. And nothing makes this more evident than in verse 14 when Paul starts to expand on what does this obedience actually look like? What, what is he envisioning? What would you envision? What, what does Christian obedience look like? Does it, does it look like just reading your Bible a lot more? Does it look like praying a lot more? Does it look like sharing the gospel with a bunch of people? Does it look like going to church every Sunday? Or not sleeping around, not drinking too much? Paul says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's the top Thing on his list. And, and it's actually not surprising because if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you'll discover the problem with God's people again and again and again is grumbling. Like you read the Old Testament, God does all these amazing things. Like he 
brings his people out of Egypt. He gives them this new kingdom. He gives them conquest over nations. Even when they're disobedient, he brings them back from exile. And again and again, they feel like God is holding out on them. And and aren't we the same way? Like we grumble and complain about things on a dime. Maybe it's just Burwell food, especially on the weekends. I've heard it's pretty terrible. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that you didn't get into the amazing coffee interim class that I've been hearing about. I know some people were upset about that. Um, But I I think where we see this come out the most, and it's so damaging and devastating, is this grumbling about one another. That, you know, again, something as small as the person leaving their clothes in the dryer just people that you you think are snobby, you think they're weird, you think they're flaky, you think they're closed off, you think they're just way too busy or full of themselves. And Christians aren't exempted from this. I would say sometimes Christians do this more. Though we were designed for gratitude in this fallen world that we live in, warped by sin, gratitude is now counterintuitive. Grumbling is the most natural thing our hearts. And I, and I know this because I experience it every single day when I wake up. So Paul knows this and he therefore puts it first as the most important thing of what is what does the gospel look like taking root in their lives? It looks like them becoming grateful, gracious people. It's not them just becoming outwardly moral and successful people. So what if we thought about it this way? What if we stopped just thinking about growth in terms of you know, being involved in more things, getting better grades, not str- struggling with lust less, struggling with drinking and other things less? What if it, it, we started thinking about gratitude? What if we started thinking about that person that we've been talking about behind their back, secretly bad-mouthing them. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not even two other people. Maybe it's just in your own heart. What if that was our attention? What, what, what would that change about Christian community? What, what would RUF look like if it was a place where people were constantly thinking about doing all things without grumbling and complaining? I think you see in that how if we're going to do this, if we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's something we've got to do together. We, we've got to come out of the darkness. We've got to admit these things are going on and bring it out into the light of our community. But I want to ask just one more time again, is Paul's command here, is it, is it basically just the equivalent of him yelling to like the kids, just stop fighting, stop arguing? Like, like, is he just telling us to do something? Because if that really is all you're hearing, that's really not good news. That's, you, you could kind of go away from here to press. And I, I think that could be easy to miss, but this passage, this, this second section in the command here is just so full of grace. And um, it's a very interesting way it comes out. So at the end of the Old Testament book, Deuteronomy, Moses writes this song uh, that's... It, it was supposed to like sink into the hearts of Israel. It was kind of like his last thing that he was giving them. 
And, and it's before he's writing this song, if you read chapter 31, like he's really pessimistic about Israel. He says, he's basically like, I know as soon as I die, like you guys are going to just turn aside from what I've been telling you to do and just be totally corrupt. And he actually, in the song that he writes, he gives his verdict about Israel. He says, they are not God's children. They are blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Like it's super harsh. But it's true if you actually read the story of God's people in the Old Testament. Paul is in a very similar position, if you think about it, to Moses. He knows his time is about to end. He's in prison, as we talked about earlier this semester. He, he may die. He may be executed by the Roman government. He, he doesn't know. It's not looking like he has much more time. He's not going to be around to be the spiritual leader and guide for the Philippians, so he's concerned for them. But contrast his perspective with Moses. So look again, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why did Paul frame it differently? Because Paul knew that there was a greater Moses that came, that Jesus came and died on the cross, and he experienced the curse of the law for his people. So this, this curse, this condemnation that we hear in Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32 would be reversed. Like the Philippian believers should be cast out. They should be rejected, but they are adopted as God's children. The Old Testament prophet Hosea actually prophesied about this. He said, in the place where it's been said to them, you're not my people, like that part in Deuteronomy, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. These Gentiles, the ones who were alienated, that had no hope and without God in the world are now in Christ Jesus, are children of God. And so this good news surrounds the commands that Paul is giving the Philippians. Grumbling does not actually reside in their spiritual DNA. He's not calling them to become children of God here. He's saying, you're already children of God. Live it out. And so that, that's the message to us. When, when you're hearing this, don't grumble and, and argue and dispute with one another. Paul's saying that that's not who you guys are. You guys are children of God. You've been made blameless and without blemish through Jesus. You hold that very word of life, that message that a dying, sick world needs. You have all the power you need to work out this reality, this salvation in your life. There, there's a movie, uh, it's pretty old now at this point, called Blood Diamond. Uh, and it, it was about the conflicts over in, in Africa uh, during in the war-torn land, over, it, over where they would like find diamonds and, and harvest them. But it, it also is about a father who's trying to rescue his son. And the son, uh, Dia is his name, 
He's been kidnapped and basically forced to be this child soldier. Uh, He's drugged and just made to witness terrible things. Uh, And Solomon, uh, his father, is searching for him. And, and, you know, through this process, Dia has basically just forgotten who he is. And at last, Solomon finds him in this rebel camp. And he, he points a gun at his father. And there's, like, this tense moment, like, is the son going to kill his dad? Like, is that how far gone he is? And at, at this point, Solomon says, Dia, look at me. Look at me. What are you doing? You are Dia Vendi of the proud Mende tribe. You're a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister and the new baby. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you and you will come home with me and be my son again. And he did that. Puts down the gun. Dia became obedient by being reminded, by remembering who he was and who he belonged to. And, and that is really what we need. That, that is what Paul is doing here. Gospel obedience, change in our life, growth comes from more and more remembering, remembering and internalizing who we are in Christ. As we wrap up, um, the last thing I want to say, just very short, uh, the result of all this. You kind of see it. Look at verses 17 through 18. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering from the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says this so much throughout this entire letter. Like, it is insane how much he talks about joy. But if, if Philippians as a whole, if you notice, you read it, it's, a lot of it is about obedience. Like, it does not take a casual view of the Christian life. Obedience is front and center. What is that telling us? It's telling us the result of obedience, the result of pursuing this is joy. Obedience to Christ and joy go hand in hand. When we do that obedience, we we may feel like things are not going our way. It may cost us greatly. We may feel like Paul, that we are being poured out like a drink offering. He's He's alluding to his death there. We feel like we're dying inside. But if in that we are pursuing Jesus, we are seeking to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, seeking to see all the things God can do in our life and to listen to him, the end result's going to be joy. That's why, that's why Paul just keeps saying this over and over again. Let me close us in prayer. Father, uh, we confess that we don't like to obey. Um, we want freedom to do what we want when we want. Um, we... Our hearts are often filled with ingratitude and grumbling and frustration and disappointment with you. And we we almost become so lost in it that we're, we're like Dia. We almost forget who we are. We forget that you are our father. And so we pray that you, you would come in uh, like Dia's father 
and speak to our hearts. Remind us of who we are in you, that we are your children, that you have made us pure and blameless, and that you've called us into this life of joy and peace found and following and listening to you. And so we, we pray you might work these things in our life uh, through, through Christ, uh, in whose name we pray. Amen. You guys can stand and uh, we'll sing our last song. All I have is Christ. <laughs>